turn with, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Judges, the Old Testament book of Judges. If you're using one of the black Bibles there in the seats, this is on page 166, page 166. Reading now, just a selection from chapter 1. For now, we'll read verses 1 to 7. Now, after the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, Who shall be first to go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Indeed, I have delivered the land into his hand. So Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me to my allotted territory, that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I will likewise go with you to your allotted territory. And Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up, and the Lord delivered the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand. And they killed 10,000 men at Bezek. And they found Adonai Bezek in Bezek and fought against him. And they defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Then Adonai Bezek fled, and they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off used to gather scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. Then they brought him to Jerusalem, and there he died. This is the word of the living God, and we say, Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we're grateful for the Sabbath day, grateful for this, your people gathered together. I thank you for the various people I see around the room even now and their various gifts and the way that they add to this body. I pray that this evening, just as we saw this morning, that we will once again see Jesus Christ here, even in the Old Testament. I pray we'll see him and see his worth. I pray that we'll see our need for him and that we'll rejoice for he's freely offered. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. I was looking and I saw that as recently as as 2020, George Barna did some research. He's a famous researcher. And he found that of those surveyed, seven out of ten Americans believe humanity is basically good. Seven out of ten. That is a a high number. It's actually down 30 years ago. It was in the 80s, 80 percentile. And so something's happened over the last 30 years. People don't think of humanity as highly as they used to. But still, seven out of ten think that people are basically good. Or Calvinists in here, we know what that T is in Tulip. Total depravity. Total depravity. And we're in the book of Judges. One of the great uses of this book, this book, is, is to prove that that T. And, and, and it's almost as if I'm just going to answer a question that may be on your mind. Do we really need to prove that one? I mean, we see the culture out there, don't we? If anything, we don't need to be proved. We, we don't need the T proven. Maybe you could work on the L or, or, or one of the other letters there in, in Tulip. 
But we're here. We're in Judges. This is the word of God. And I think there's something useful for us. There was a book written about 100 years ago. Some of you may have read it in school called The Lord of the Flies. The Lord of the Flies. Great little book. It also is a study of total depravity. If you're not familiar with it, there's a shipwreck. And the only survivors are children. These are 11, 12-year-olds mostly. And so this, the book, it's a short novel, and it's, it's just their exploits. And by the end of the novel, half of the island is burnt down. A few of the kids have died via accidents and drownings, things like that. They are filthy. They have separated into tribes. They're wearing masks, some of them. They are without authority, and without authority, they all are doing what is wise in their own eyes. And then at the end of the the story, after one of the main characters is killed by falling off a cliff, a rescue boat comes, and the rescue boat comes, and the most interesting thing happens. This captain gets off the ship, and he walks over. He sees the children. They're filthy. They begin crying. They know their need of rescue. And the captain of the ship who's come to rescue them looks at them, sees their disheveled state and says, you know, I would have expected better from a bunch of British children. And the point is that you're civilized. You're Brits. How did you fall into such debauchery? You of all people, the most civilized nation in the world. And here you are, half the island is burnt down. And as we approach the book of Judges, I think by the end, you'll see and you'll ask the same thing. How could any people, how could God's people of all people fall into such disarray? By the end of the book, you can see the very last line of the book reads, In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So we're going to get a taste of that. You get a taste of that early on. You get a taste of that all the way through. This book is full of colorful stories, interesting stories. In some ways, some of the most despicable stories in the Bible are, are, are here. We see total depravity. The whole Old Testament... <clears throat> looks forward to the Christ who is to come. And this book ends really in an unsatisfying way. It ends with people just looking around in disarray. So let's, before diving in, let's give a little bit of a background. So the mission of Israel, I'm going to talk about that for a moment. We see the mission of Israel really in in Deuteronomy 7. I'm going to quote a few verses here from Deuteronomy Seven. So God selected Abraham out of all the peoples and he made a covenant with Abraham. And over time, God rescues this people time and again, and he gives them a mission. He gives them a promised land. He's going to place them in a particular land, in the land of Canaan. That's where we're at in our book today. They're there at the land of Canaan and they are to take over. And God gives them a mission. And he says this in Deuteronomy 7. When the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess and has cast out many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, 
seven nations greater and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them. That's key. Their job is to conquer Canaan. Their job is to take over this promised land. God goes further. Nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son, nor take their daughter for your son. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve the gods. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall destroy their altars, places of worship. Break down their sacred pillars, places of worship. And cut down their wooden images, places of worship. And burn their carved images with fire. Now, I recognize, I think, most everyone in the room. But if there are unbelievers who happen to hear this via the Internet or some other means, immediately... I think many are going to argue with with the fact that God is telling his people to go and take over a land and destroy them. He says utterly destroy them. Leave no remnant. A little bit of background on the Canaanites. I think this will make it a little more palatable. Do you really know who the Canaanites are? Listen to the description. There's two descriptions. God only had to give us one, but he gives us two. The Canaanites are despicable people. So as they go in, God says this. And again, a lot of background, and then we're going to get rolling once we get into Judges. This also from Deuteronomy 18. I'm going to just kind of quote a few verses. Deuteronomy 18, beginning in verse 9. Again, God giving them instructions as they go into the promised land. He says this, when you come into the land, you shall not learn to follow the abominations of those nations. And then he tells the sorts of activities that are going on in Canaan. He says this. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or daughter pass through the fire. That's child sacrifice. You shall not do that when you go into Canaan. That's what they do. Or one who practices witchcraft. You shall not do that. That's what they're doing in Canaan. Shall not be a soothsayer or one who interprets omens or a sorcerer. Or one who conjures spells, or a medium, or a spiritist, or, who, or one who calls up the dead. For, for these things are an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God drives them out from before you. These nations which you shall dispossess listened to soothsayers, but not you. Another quote, this from Leviticus. In Leviticus... There's a lengthy description. This is a, a, a bit graphic, honestly. I'm going to skip, skip a few places. Um, but in Leviticus 18, this is what the Canaanites are like. There's various forms of incest, all sorts of forms of incest listed for half the chapter in Leviticus 18. And then it says, moreover, you shall not lie carnally with your neighbor's wife to defile yourself with her. You shall not let any of the descendants pass through the fire So again, child sacrifice. You shall not profane the name of the Lord. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. So homosexuality is taking place in Canaan. Nor shall you mate with any animal to defile yourself with it. Nor shall any woman stand before an animal to mate with it. It is a perversion. Do not defile yourself with any of these things. For by all these, the nations are defiled. So that's what's going on in Canaan. 
Therefore, I visit the punishment of its iniquity upon it, and the land vomits out its inhabitants. So because of this gross, despicable, nasty sin, God is going to punish the people of Canaan. They're going to be done, utterly finished. So as you go in, God is very clear, and he repeats this instruction. Completely destroy them. So let's look now at the beginning of Judges. I'm going to take a macro view. Uh, By that, I mean I'm just going to do this in big chunks. My aim is to preach a series of sermons through this book. Um, Lord willing, tonight we'll make it through the first two chapters, actually. And, And my intention here is just to give you not lots of details, but big ideas. So let's look at the structure of chapters one and two, I think the best way to get started in this book is to recognize some of the basics here. The beginning of the book, Joshua dies. It's verse one. Interestingly, chapter two, Joshua dies again. It's recorded. So Joshua dies in chapter one and then he dies in in chapter two. That's at least the way it's recorded. So what's going on? I think the best way to think of this is there's two introductions So chapter one, I'm going to put this in two headings. Chapter one, we're going to say that this is a failure of conquest. This is all of chapter one, failure of conquest. Chapter two, the heading will be failure of worship, failure of worship. And both of them, I'm going to begin with the death of Joshua. Now, Joshua was the successor to Moses. Moses led the people of Israel out of Egypt. And then after his death, Joshua is now the leader of Egypt. The interesting thing at this point in Israel's history is that they are without a leader. Joshua dies and there is no one appointed to take over for him. The idea now is that God himself will be the king, that the authority is given to the 12 tribes of Israel. One commentator says this is like Jesus' ascension. Jesus is ascended. He doesn't put his, he doesn't, he doesn't name one successor. The apostles, the church is the successor. In a similar way, once Joshua passes, the 12 tribes all succeed him. And this book is, is that time period where you are between Joshua leading, and then eventually we're going to have Samuel rise up. The people are going to cry for a king, and that's when Saul is named king. So there's background. So, chapter one, we have the first introduction. Again, this is failure of conquest. In the beginning, you're going to notice that that things begin looking good. Let's look at verse two. The people have a good pattern here. The Lord said, because the people prayed to him, and he answers them, Judah shall go up. They shall go first and conquer their own tribal land. So there's 12 tribal lands. Judah will go first. And the people were in a good pattern here. They were inquiring of the Lord. The Lord was answering. And notice that the Lord delivers the Canaanites into their hands. 10,000 of them. And then there's a particular king. His name is Adonai Bezek. We just read about him. He's a particularly powerful king. Apparently 70 nations, kings actually bowed the knee to him and he did something where he 
pretty unusual. He would, he would cut off their thumbs and their big toes. And so when, when Judah uh, captures him, they do the same to him. And immediately, you've got to ask yourself, is that right or wrong? They, they take over this, this, particular, this particular place. They kill this king. Is this right or wrong? Well, the, the most clear note, I think, is that they do not kill him. Notice there, the end of verse 7, they brought him to Jerusalem and there he died. They did not kill the king. They did not utterly destroy this particular people. You see, they're, they're, they're barely compromising, aren't they? They do something pretty harsh to him. They cut off his thumbs and his big toes, but they do not kill him. So this is partial obedience. And again, they're, they're, they're succeeding. They're, they're obeying in some ways, but they're not fully obeying. Now, verse 8, we have more successes. And we're going to go down, all the way down. There's successes all the way down through 16, 17, 18. And then here in 19, we see another form of disobedience. Notice there, verse 19. The Lord was with Judah. They had drove out the inhabitants of the land. They're doing lots of good. But here, they did not drive out the inhabitants of the lowland. There's a particular area. They did not completely drive them out. Why? Because they had chariots. The chariots are formidable. They say, no thanks, we're not going to go there. We're not going to. We're not going to do that again. Partial obedience. So you see the theme going on in chapter one. They're obeying up to a point and then they are disobeying. The first several paragraphs of this chapter deals with Judah. Judah is the prominent tribe. And then we're going to get into some of the lesser tribes. Joseph is talked about then Manasseh, Ephraim, Zebulon. And as you walk through the chapter, You'll notice that there's further and further disobedience. And by the end of the chapter, you can see verse 34, the Amorites forced the children of Dan into the mountains. They kept making little compromises. And now by the end of the chapter, Israel is actually being forced by the Canaanites to withdraw. So that's chapter one. There's a failure of conquest. Now, again, looking at chapter two, and I'll quickly go through this and then really spend some time in application. Chapter two, I know that immediately we want to say that this is a, a that this is chronological, but it's not. Notice chapter two, the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim. The angel of the Lord comes. Well, we've we've read about this angel of the Lord elsewhere in Scripture. Some would say that this is a pre-incarnate Christ. Others would say this is a messenger of some sort of the Lord. Some will call this an envoy. There's a couple of notes here about chapter 2, verse 1. And again, this is the second heading. This is going to be failure of worship. So this is a reset. This is the second introduction. Angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal. Why did the angel of the Lord come up from Gilgal? 
That's where the Ark of the Covenant happened to be at the time. So there's some sort of signal here that, that Yahweh is coming up from where he is currently located to meet the people of God. And he comes to Bokim. That means weeping. So this is a place of weeping. It's probably not literally the name of the place, but this is what it will be called because the angel of the Lord will cause these people to weep. Here's what he says. I led you up from Egypt and brought you to the land which I swore to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. Angel of the Lord comes up. He's got some fire. They have not obeyed them. And he asks that question. Why have you done this? And now he's going to tell us the consequences. I will not drive them out before you, but they shall be thorns in your side and their God shall be a snare to you. So it was when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the children of Israel and the people lifted up their voices and wept. So when does this take place? We actually don't know for sure, but it appears that this takes place before the beginning of chapter one, verse one. A lot of detail. Don't need to get bogged down there. Notice what's next. Verse six deals with Joshua again. Verses six through ten. And then we have another record. Verse eight, Joshua dies. So when the angel of the Lord comes up in chapter two, Joshua is living. And then Joshua dies and he dismisses the people to all their tribal lands. And now we have verse 11. I know this is a lot of information. We're going to keep going. This is all background. Now we have really a break, I think, in the narrative, beginning in verse 11 all the way to the end of the chapter. And this is going to be what we can call the cycle of the judges. Some of you have heard of this, I'm sure. But this we can call the cycle of the judges. Notice now that the people all go to their tribal lands. We saw what happened in chapter one when they went to their tribal lands. They did not conquer their own lands. And now we're going to see something else they did not do. They did not worship Yahweh. Notice verse 11. They did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. It's the God of the Canaanites. And they forsook the Lord, their God, the God that brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they followed other gods. This is the pattern in the book of Judges. The people of Israel, though they have been blessed by God, though they have been set apart by God, they somehow forsake him. The question is how? Do you see do you see how they got to this point where they worship the Baals? The reason they're doing this in chapter 2 is because of what happened in chapter 1. They did not utterly destroy the Canaanites. They partially obeyed and they just left an opening. Here and there, all through chapter 1, there is an opening. And they begin to Worship false gods. 
In God's mercy, he sends judges. First, the Lord is angry. Notice verse 14, the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. He delivered them into the hands of plunderers and despoiled them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity, as the Lord had said, and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were greatly distressed. Then the Lord raises up judges who delivers them out of the hand of the Canaanites. So here we have the cycle of judges. There's four steps. Israel apostatizes. That's the first step. This is, this is what I mean by false worship. Israel apostatizes. Second step, God's anger is aroused. Third step, Israel calls out for help. Fourth step, God delivers Israel. And then the pattern is repeated. And we'll see this through the book of Judges. Israel apostatizes. God's anger is aroused. Israel calls out for help. God delivers Israel. Then there is a conclusion at the very end of chapter 2. Look there with me, verses 20 through 23. God concludes this whole chapter 1 and 2 with these words. Because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and has not heeded my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died, so that through them I may test Israel, whether they will keep the ways of the Lord to walk in them as their fathers kept them or not. Therefore, the Lord left those nations without driving them out immediately, nor did he deliver them into the hand of Joshua. And this sort of settles the matter, at least for the time being. Israel has proven that they are going to continue to apostatize. They call for mercy and God rescues them. So several questions, several applications. I won't press. There's there's so many applications in this book that that we we won't get to all of them. And I know how quickly we just went through that information. But again, my idea here is to set us up for chapters three and beyond, because the meat of the book really starts in the next chapter. But first, a question, why would God allow the nations to stay? Why would he allow the nations to stay? He says so in verse 20 and 21, he will not drive out the nations anymore. Does that seem cruel of God? I think the answer to this would be similar to the way we would talk about how God did not give the Israelites more manna than they actually needed. Deuteronomy 8. He humbled Israel. I allowed you to hunger. I fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that I might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone. I think that's the idea. Why does God allow the nations to stay so that you may know that you do not live by bread alone so that you may know that you depend upon me? 
You've proven how depraved you are. And he allows these nations to stay so that God can test them by it. This will be our first application. Our first application. God, I'm going to say say it this way. God allows difficulties that he may test us by them. God allows difficulties that he might test us by them. Samuel Rutherford, my wife was reading him earlier, and this is a good quote from him. He says this, I find it to be most true that the greatest temptation out of hell is to live without temptations. Let me say that again. I find it to be most true that the greatest temptation out of hell is to live without temptations. So Rutherford is actually welcoming something to test him. God intends for us to call out to him for help. Rutherford also says this, grace without grace withereth. Grace withers without adversity. We need adversity in a way. We need these nations around us that we may press into God. That that may not make um, may not make sense immediately, especially early on in the Christian life. But God allows these difficult things to be around us that we may depend upon him. Another application would be this. Do not mistake earthly success for the favor of God. Do not mistake earthly success for the favor of God. In the first chapter... The Israelites experienced a great deal of success. They conquered foreign lands. They won many victories. Their wealth grew and grew and grew. But they made little compromises. One of the compromises they made is instead of driving them completely out, they put some of these peoples under tribute to them. It's like they made them indentured servants. Why would they make them indentured servants? Well, they're going to make money off them. That's why. It makes their life a little bit easier. Oh, you're going to go work out in the fields for me? That's great. Just give me some of what you got. Your life's a little bit easier, isn't it? And it appears to the Israelites during in chapter 1 that they're succeeding. That they're succeeding. But, but are they? Because we know by chapter 2 that they're falling into false worship. That's the pattern. So we shall not mistake earthly success for the favor of God. Dale Ralph Davis says it this way. Pragmatic success and spiritual failure, a strange but possible combination. So Israel is dominant, if not obedient. She enjoys superiority, even if she does not maintain fidelity. It's a strange but possible combination. To have pragmatic success and spiritual failure. It's possible. You can be successful in the Christian life and yet fail spiritually. And that, that would take some meditating upon. But this is one of the one of the useful things about reading narratives is that you, you come upon truths like this where it's like, ah, that doesn't. How does that work? Well, that's Judges chapter one. Pragmatic success and spiritual failure are together. They're bedfellows in this case. 
Another application, this to the people of God, rescue those who are drifting into sin. What we see in this book, what we see in these first few chapters, as quick as we went through them, what we see is how quickly people drift into sin. They had yet to be in the promised land for a generation, and they're already jumping ship, worshiping the Baals. How quickly can good people fall into great sin? How quickly can good people fall into great sin? We must be there for one another. Galatians 6 tells us to confront those who are in sin, to snatch those out of the fire. It's possible for people that we go to church with week in and week out to be tempted with things that would surprise us. And it's our job to come alongside them and say, hey, if you allow that small thing to fester, what's next? What's next? Another application on the heels of this, beware of half-obedience. Beware of half-obedience. These, these cases in Judges 1 and 2, these are, these are not cases where Israel did not know the law of God. They knew the right thing to do, and they did not do it. This was not a gray area. This was not a moral dilemma. They were given a command, and they disobeyed a specific command. Are there specific commands that come to mind that you sort of half obey? Think about that this week. What area in your life are you just allowing allowing the, the, the closet door just to be just to be just inched open? Is it is it movies? Is it music? Is it your thought life? Is it finances? Where are you obeying in some sort of half manner? Another application, beware of shallow repentance. Beware of shallow repentance. In chapter 2, the name of the place is Bokim. This is a place of weeping. They, they changed the name of the place to a place of weeping because there were so many tears. They were repenting. And then a few verses later, they're worshiping the Baals. Beware of shallow repentance. Beware shallow repentance. Again, this is hard. This is hard even to, 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 to speak about. But these are good truths that we need to, we need to contemplate. Two more applications, just briefly. Um, this one, marvel at Jesus's active obedience to God. That's a mouthful. Let me say it again. Marvel at Jesus's active obedience to God. Uh, this, this book should create in us a wonderful appreciation for Christ's obedience. He obeyed the law completely. He loved the Lord, his God, with all his heart, not part of his heart, all of it. So as we go through this, just let that let that just kind of well up in you. Jesus Jesus really obeyed all the way. Uh, and then lastly, worship God for His mercy. Though they sin, and though God knows they're going to sin, and though God knows they're going to sin after He sends one judge, God in His mercy will send another judge. He will continue to send rescuers. 
All throughout the Old Testament, in fact, God will continue to provide his people with what they need for salvation. And eventually, Christ will come. And Christ, unlike all of these fallen, sinful judges, though God uses them, Christ is not like them. He's greater than them because he completely obeys God from the heart. And because of his perfect righteousness, he is the perfect sacrifice. So we can worship him with all of our heart because he's worthy. He was the worthy lamb who was slain and he takes away the sins of the world. And there's a lot of sins in the world. There's a lot of sin in this book of Judges. Let us marvel at the grace of God through it. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this book of Judges. We do pray for energy, for endurance. As we run the Christian life, as we meet together, as we meditate upon your word. I pray that we won't be overwhelmed, but dependent upon you. And I pray that during difficult times, we'll see these times as an opportunity to draw close to you, as a reminder that we can call out for you. For in your mercy, you have sent Christ by whom we may live. It's in his name we pray. Amen.